Does having too many choices make us unhappy? How can we learn practical wisdom? Dr. Barry Schwartz is the Dorwin Cartwright Professor Emeritus of Social Theory and Social Action in the Psychology Department at Swarthmore College. He is the author of many books, including Why We Work, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, and co-author of Practical Wisdom, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing. Barry Schwartz, welcome to The Creative Process. It's a pleasure to be with you, Mia. So since you wrote The Paradox of Choice, a lot has changed, even since the re-edition. You know, by 2050, 75% of the world's population will be living in cities. The average person today is bombarded with images and advertising, fighting for our eyeballs and trying to extract time and money from us. You know, over 3.3 billion people use Meta Facebook, YouTube, 2.7 billion users at TikTok, over a billion. It seems like we're living in an electronic fog of advertising information and misinformation. And of course, advanced AI is accelerating this even further. And yet in developed countries with far fewer choices, communities seem closer, happier, and healthier. If you were writing The Paradox of Choice today, what would you include in it? Well, you've just given a wonderful summary. You know, The original edition came out in 2004, and the internet was just getting started in a major league way. And already the choice overload was a problem. And I would say that from the modern perspective, 2004 seems like the 18th century. And as near as I can tell, all of these changes, every single one of them has made the problem substantially worse. And the idea that you can get information to help guide you through Well, yeah, but what information do you believe? What's trustworthy? What's being motivated by an opportunity to sell you something? So there is a haze. There is this fog that we're operating in. And I think we just sort of give up in resignation and look at recommendations and hope that they're legitimate. Because how else do you get through the day? Yeah, we have to be skeptical. I I can't imagine that the childhoods that we both had, I mean, I had a analog childhood before the advent of all this, and we had a sense, we believed things. It was just so straightforward, this sense of innocence. That's right. And, you know, I think we were probably a little too gullible in the past, and now we're too cynical. You know, it's very disconcerting to open up a site and watch things I recently Googled streaming on the left and the right. So it's very hard not to assume that everyone is in it for some self-interested motive. No one can be trusted. And either you become a Luddite or you simply get battered about by these external forces. And I think the evidence is that young people are having even more trouble than older people are. I mean, judging from the incidence of depression, anxiety disorder, suicide, it looks like young people are collectively a basket case. So, you know, they may think that they are the masters of the universe, but they are. Yeah. Social media is just one aspect of it, right? But we've seen how it's uh, affecting dopamine levels within our, our brains, young and old, and particularly those, you know, those important years when young people have neuroplasticity. And I can't imagine not knowing what normal was, you know, just being born right into this. And it isn't just the digital world. You know, there's a cartoon that I show often when I give talks of a simple goldfish bowl. And there's a big fish and a little fish, I guess a parent and an offspring. And the caption reads, you can be anything you want to be, no limits. And you look at the fish bowl and you realize that it's nothing but limits. So 
you know, from our perspective, how naive could this parent fish be? And that was my first reaction. But then as I started thinking about it, what I came to believe is that everybody needs a fishbowl. And the human fishbowl obviously has to have a lot more in it than a goldfish bowl does. But if you shatter the fishbowl, people don't know how to live. They don't know where to turn. And this notion that our job should be to elbow out of every constraint so that we are free to make ourselves is so dominant generationally. And so it isn't just digital media. It's also, I think, that parents, teachers, other people in authority have essentially relinquished their responsibility for creating the fishbowl. It used to be possible for a parent to say, we don't do that. This is not how we roll, you know, and it ended the conversation. And, you know, they didn't say it about everything, but they said it about a fair number of things. So there were guardrails and the job of kids was to try to elbow free from some of the guardrails, but there were plenty of them. And bit by bit, those guardrails have been removed, especially in rich democratic societies. And the result is just this massive flounder. You shatter the fishbowl and most of the things that happen after that are bad, not good. Yeah, and that goes to another of your areas of focus, the practical wisdom. But if we could stay on this for a while, talking about limitations. Yes, there is a sense of well-being that comes from those limitations. Even in the arts, they say, you know, you set yourself some limitations and that helps you structure, you know, spirituality, rituals, community. They say that we're living through a loneliness epidemic, and there are many ways to go beyond the limitations of our individual experiences, and some find it through you know, spirituality, and they find a sense of community there, a sense of history, others, you know, sports, the arts, environmental movements. What have you pursued? Well, let me just add one thing to your astute observation, and that is every one of the things you just described like connections to other people or connections to religious institutions or religious traditions, every one of those imposes constraints. You know, you can't do anything you want to do because you're constrained by what does my family need from me? What do my friends need from me? I can't take any job. I want to stay in this geographical region. You know, I can't eat anything because my religious teachings tell me that there are certain foods you don't eat. So every one of these things that people used to cling to and draw some comfort from, even though sometimes frustration, is a constraint. And people hate being constrained. And it is not freedom is good, but there can be too much of a good thing. And I don't think anyone could have guessed that 100 years ago. But now we're in the midst of it. Indeed. I mean, just going into that spiritual level, yeah, there's a cleansing. You know, some people, they're finding there's health benefits. You talk about religious traditions of fasting and this and going without, if you're talking about the digital overload, it's healthy to yeah. just, just, you know, a moment of meditation or a moment of reflection that's hard to find now. But doing it as part of a group, especially when you talk about loneliness, seeking some sort of spiritual bath on your own is probably a good thing. But seeking it as part of a community is a better thing. But the stronger your communal ties, the more constrained you are as an individual. And I think people are just reluctant to welcome these kinds of constraints. So also you've written about decision science. And of course, all of us are thinking about AI. You had this brilliant um, audio series, the, the Art and Science of Making Better Decisions. You know, with the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning, how do you foresee these technologies impacting our ability to make decisions, both individually and as a society? Well, so I have very mixed feelings about AI, and I think its future and our future with it 
is are very much up for grabs. And here's the reason why. At the moment, these extraordinary achievements like chat GPT, I mean, literally mind-boggling achievements, are completely indifferent to truth. They crawl around in the web and learn how words go together. And so they produce coherent, meaningful strings of words, sentences, paragraphs that you're astonished could have been produced by a machine. However, there are, are no filters that weed out the false concatenations of words from the true ones. And so you get something that's totally believable and totally plausible and totally grammatical, but is it true? And if AI continues to move in this direction, getting more and more sophisticated as a mock human and continuing to be indifferent to truth, the problems that we started our conversation with are only going to get worse because the speed with which untrue things can be put out by machine algorithm is almost comprehensible. And so you will be mostly looking for diamonds in a huge pile of coal because most of the statements that are out there won't be true, or if they're true, it'll only be accidentally true. So you'll have very little reason to believe anything. There have been a couple of cases, I assume you know this, where lawyers filed briefs and cited cases, and it turned out they relied on chat GPT for a significant chunk of those briefs, and chat GPT simply invented the cases. They didn't exist, and they got caught. So this is a pretty horrible future to contemplate, but I don't want to suggest that you can't start imposing truth filters in AI that will, to some degree, ameliorate the problem. But at the moment, the systems are essentially indifferent to whether the text they produce is true. You know, what's good is that there seems to be a lot of concern about its future and the impact of its future. And it's pretty early in the game for that concern to have appeared. That's the good news. So there's an awful lot of room for constraining, regulating what ends up being produced. But regulation is only as good as its enforcement so that it's always going to be imperfect. And how much malevolence is out there? At the moment, there's an enormous amount of malevolence, either just to screw people up to achieve some nefarious aim. And it's hard for me to believe that the regulators will be able to stay one step ahead of the villains of the piece. We'll see. You can't make it not happen. So the only source of optimism is that people are early to appreciate that there are real potential dangers. And I think that on this point of seeing through the fact-checking, making sure that the queries and the responses are truthful, I think intuitive and adaptive intelligence is not something that we teach enough in schools. And you've written practical wisdom, the right way to do the right thing. My own opinion is that maybe a lot of us aren't growing up in multi-generational families. There's something that wisdom takes a long time to achieve. It does, but it's not only that. My collaborator and I, the point we were trying to make when we wrote Practical Wisdom is that algorithms, rules, standard operating procedures only take you so far. The world is a complicated place. Every situation is unique. You've no doubt done a lot of interviews. Every interview is different, I hope. Otherwise, you'd be bored to death. And so you need to be able to exercise judgment. But the last thing you want is putting people in a position to exercise judgment when they have bad judgment. And so what happens when people show bad judgment is you add a rule 
to prevent that bad judgment from displaying itself. And so what we have done as societies, when healthcare isn't delivered the way we think it should be, when classrooms are not operating the way we think they should be, when legal advice and medical advice are not operating the way we think they should be, is we impose more and more rules because we are not willing to trust the judgment of the people who are offering these services. And the problem is, as you put it, wisdom is something that's acquired through experience. Good judgment comes mostly from bad judgment and correction. And if you don't get an opportunity to exercise your judgment because you're just a rule follower, you'll never develop good judgment. And so there's a a sense in which rules, structures, really constructures are an insurance policy against disaster, but at the same time, almost a guarantee of mediocrity. So you have to be willing to take risks. This in some ways is the opposite of the lesson of the choice book. People in positions where decisions have to be made need to be allowed to use their judgment. Judges need to be able to use their judgment in handing down sentences instead of having a spreadsheet that tells them how many years in prison each crime must entail. But if you don't get practice using your judgment, then you don't have good judgment. So I think the way you teach it is by giving people the chance to make mistakes and watching them so that you can help correct the mistakes. And over time, judgment gets better. And I think it's essential, particularly in domains in life that involve interacting with other people, because that's the part of life where the most variability, the most uniqueness creeps in. You know, you become a parent and you have rules. This is how I'm going to raise my kid. And your kid quickly teaches you that those rules are not adequate, that situations arise that the rules don't count for. Fine. So you get wise. Then you have another kid. And lo and behold, this kid's completely different from your first kid. And all the judgment you developed in raising your first kid has to be revised because this kid needs something different. And in the course of all this, parents make all kinds of mistakes, and hopefully none of them are catastrophic. And they eventually, if they're paying attention, they get wiser and wiser as parents. Indeed. And you speak about situational awareness and having that practical wisdom. We have a lot of silos of knowledge. Sometimes people, you know, they they know so much about such a narrow area. And we're, we're dealing with issues like climate change. We need a lot of transdisciplinary cooperation. And sometimes the lawmakers may be, you know, sometimes people know best who are on the ground, like you're talking about, like farmers might know best about how to manage the land than, you know, these decisions that are made by others and businesses, but don't have that firsthand knowledge. Well, that's absolutely right. And the siloing is just, in my own field in psychology, I've been doing this for a very long time. And when I started in the late 1960s, there was just a tiny fraction of the specialization that there is now. So education in psychology meant education in all of psychology, which is not to say that you were an expert in everything, but you knew something about everything. And that's just not true anymore. When you go to graduate school, right away you go into a lab and you start doing research and you learn more and more about less and less as you do research. And the effort to sort of generally educate you in psychology is just disappeared, at least at the graduate level and to some degree at the undergraduate level. You want your best students to get into the lab as early as possible and work with you. And that's just within psychology. To be a good psychologist, you need to know a little economics. You need to know a little sociology. You know, there's history. There's a lot of other stuff you need to know. 
And all that gets crowded out too. So we are certainly not educating people to be wise, but there's a trade-off. The more time you spend getting generally educated, the less time you have to become a real specialist. And certain fields now demand that kind of specialization. So, you know, you can try dividing the labor and having groups that consist of some generalists and some specialists who talk to one another. And you're speaking about the paradox of choice and capitalism and consumerism. You know, work touches a lot on capitalism shaping our views on work and the pursuit of happiness. How yep. do you think capitalism can be better aligned with human well-being? Well, I am not optimistic about that. I really think it's the 8,000-pound gorilla. And, you know, capitalism, when it first developed, was a very significant part of life, but it wasn't all of life. In other words, it had its place. But that place wasn't every place. And what's happened over the years, what some people call economic imperialism, is that the incredible efficiencies of the market started being exported to other aspects of life. And so the classroom, you know, the educational institution is just another market. The students are customers, the professors are the retailers, and you operate to keep the customers happy. It wouldn't have occurred to anyone to think about education in those terms, but it's increasingly become a market and you got to sell yourself. That means spending lots of money on things that are essentially irrelevant to education that sort of make universities summer camps with libraries and also catering to student demand. You know, you want to get to get positive course evaluations. And if that means assigning less work, making the class easier, basically doing stand-up comedy in the classroom, if that's going to get you good evaluations, which in turn is going to get you promoted and get you tenure, then what you've got is a market. And it didn't used to be a market. And you can see this sort of influence in the law, in medicine. It, it basically touches almost every aspect of life now because we've adopted the market economy as a model of the sort of high point of human endeavor. When in my view, it's a kind of deformation of the high point of human endeavor. And, you know, I've been worrying about this for 40 years. And so far, I mostly talk to myself. So I'm optimistic that there's going to be a sea change that tries to restrain the market rather than rather than expanding it. Indeed, that review process, when you talked about doctors being reviewed, that's kind of fueled the opioid epidemic. Yep. But you want review. So, you know, the problem is not that you have the whole people accountable. The problem is what are the goals that you're trying to achieve? And if the goal you're trying to achieve is a fatter bottom line, then you will be holding people accountable, but to the wrong things. So that's where the problem arises. You can't just give doctors free reign or lawyers or teachers, but you want to make sure that they are being held to the right kind of account. And when a market sort of way of thinking infiltrates an institution, then you start holding people to account to meet the wrong goals. So why is it so hard uh, for someone to change? And uh, talking about identifying goals and then pursuing them in an unblinkered or focused way? Well, it's because people don't live in a vacuum. People are heavily influenced by other people. And we're also heavily influenced by social structures and institutions. And that influence is so pervasive that I think it can exert itself without our even realizing. It doesn't occur to people growing up now 
that they've got a kind of market capitalist lens through which they look at everything. When they're trying to decide whether to form a friendship, they ask themselves, is it worth it to me to invest my time in this relationship? Notice the language, is it worth it to invest my time? And it doesn't occur to people that this is a sort of distorted way to be thinking about developing close relations to other people. It's just become the language of our time. So you get influenced by being awash in markets and consumerism without realizing that's what's happening to you. So that's a hard influence to overcome because you don't even realize its presence. That's what makes it so difficult for people to change. It's very difficult to separate. There are thoughts and there are the ways that language imprints upon us and our perception yeah. of the world. And English is organized in a certain way. And I just recently had a conversation with Tiakasin Ghost Horse, a Native American of the Cheyenne River Lakota Nation of South Dakota and the host of First Voices Radio. And he mm -hmm. talks about the Lakota language being a language mainly of verbs and relationship. And the English language or other languages is about uh, domination and ownership and nouns and objects. And we've somehow lost our connection with the language of the earth. And you talk about capitalist language. And I know you're not completely against it, but it makes us form decisions that we might not have if maybe we were born in another language. That's right. I think the thing is, in my field, in the psychology of decision-making, people often talk about language as a kind of screen that obscures the underlying reality. And so what you need to teach yourself is to get past the language to the things in the world that the language is described. Language is the enemy of truth and clarity. And I think that's exactly wrong. Everything we know in the world is mediated by language, and you can't separate objects and experiences from the language we use to describe those objects and experiences. So the trick is to become more mindful of how language shapes the way we think about how we are in the world, rather than trying to erase its distorting impact. And here too, you know, things are mostly moving in the wrong direction. I think this can be overstated. The classic Worfian hypothesis that Eskimos have a hundred words for snow so they can see all kinds of distinctions that non-Eskimos can't. Well, that's not true. We can all make the distinctions. We just can't label them. But I'm not sure whether that's true of things like justice, fairness, compassion, empathy, you know, more abstract terms than snow. Without the language of description, how do we get our arms around what it means to be compassionate? We rely on language to help us figure out what these abstract terms actually mean with respect to how we act in the world. You don't need language to see powdery snow as distinct from sort of icy snow, but you kind of do need language to distinguish genuine compassion from sort of manipulative compassion. Yeah, maybe to transmit it. You know, as I think about the uh, non-human animals, I feel like in a moment without language, they sense you. <laughs> and we may be to adopting language have lost some of those senses? I don't doubt that, but the sensitivity and communicative ability of animals is really limited. So what they know, they really know, but most of what's going on, they don't know at all. So language is this incredible tool. It liberates us, but it can also distort, and you can't experience the world except through language. I'm overstating. Obviously, we have eyes, we have ears. But almost every experience we have is mediated by 
the tools that our language gives us to understand and explain what's happening. Oh, yes, indeed. I mean, I don't think I could go a day without speaking or without listening. And it's a real challenge. And maybe if one lost one of the, your senses and to just see how one could exist in the world. Yep. And other senses can compensate. I mean, we're very visual human beings, more so than auditory, but the world of sound expands when you lose your sight. And it's not that you didn't have that capacity before, it's just that you didn't need that capacity before because you were getting, making your way in the world with multiple inputs, not just auditory ones. So I have no doubt that there's a kind of increasing sophistication and usefulness of other senses when we lose one. But I also have very little doubt that you just can't live in the same world as a blind person that a sighted person lives. And going back to this practical wisdom, who were those important teachers or, you know, family growing up that passed wisdom on to you? Huh. You know, that's an interesting thing. I must say... I was guilty of the arrogance of youth, as most people are. I didn't think that my family had much to teach me. I was the first person in my family to go to college. What could they possibly teach me? And so, like an idiot, I almost never asked them questions about what their lives had been like. It was When they died, I started kicking myself for none having had long and informative conversations with them about their life experience and open to being taught by them. So in this, I'm not unique. I suspect most young people think that they have very little to learn from their elders. I did, I would say most of my view of the world that I currently have came when I started teaching. I was fortunate to be teaching at a liberal arts college where there weren't silos. I was talking to historians, sociologists, philosophers, and economists as much as I was to colleagues in psychology. And my education really began when I was supposed to be teaching students. That was when I was being educated. I was being educated by colleagues. I was being educated by students. And happily, I was open enough so that I let the education happen instead of thinking that I already knew everything I needed to know. So to the extent that I have insights, and I assure you there are plenty of people you can talk to who think I have no insights worth sharing, that approach really began when I started being a teacher in my mid-20s. And that's when I really started regretting having been so arrogant as a younger person. Yes. And I don't know what the ages would have been of your parents, but I know that from, I was raised by, partially by my grandparents. So I think those generations, whether they experienced war, different trauma, sometimes they didn't say things. You could have, have to intuit or you really did have to ask. It was that generation... Yeah. No, that was certainly true. I mean, there were things I found out about my family's struggles as immigrants in earlier generations that they were embarrassed by. For a time, my grandmother kept the family alive by selling bootleg liquor during the prohibition, and they were embarrassed that she was a lawbreaker. You know, this little white-haired woman was breaking the law. And I was incredibly proud that she basically had decided that she would do whatever was necessary to keep the family together and put food on the table and what happened. So yeah, there was an awful lot of withholding. But still, I could have pushed. I could have asked. Maybe they would not have been willing to talk about everything, but they surely would have been willing to talk about some things. And, and I, you know, it's a missed opportunity. And now I'm watching, of course, as my grandchildren 
behave in exactly the same way that I did. What does he have to teach us? And sometimes I don't know the, the immigration background of your, your family, but sometimes when they grew up and you talk about being a second language when they grew up in other languages. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all of my, my parents' generation was born in the United States, but their parents came from Eastern Europe. And English never became anything like a first language for the grandparents' generation. In fact, there was a fair amount of communication in Yiddish between my parents' generation and their parents. My parents learned enough Yiddish that they could communicate with their parents that way. And then it also had the virtue of enabling them to talk about things they didn't want me to understand with me sitting right next to them. Because just as I didn't ask them questions, I didn't bother learning their language. I'm told, I did an interview with the Maison de la Couture Yiddish, and I'm told it's from other people, from Israel and different people have told me it's a very creative language. And as you say, you can say things in Yiddish, you can't say in others. Very great for the jokes. It just makes much yes, more sense. I think that's right. You know, I think it is largely derived from what's called low German. So it's sort of working class German that then got, because Jews were essentially separated from the rest of society, they developed their own expressions and their own idioms and their own vocabulary. So Yiddish isn't exactly low German, but it's an approximation to it. But I just wasn't interested. What drew you to psychology? Here too, it was a, just a lucky accident. I didn't know what psychology was. And I, you know, I took it as a college freshman to fulfill a requirement and because it fit neatly into my schedule. And as it turned out, I literally did not know what it was. And as it turned out, the person teaching that class was a legendary teacher. His name is Philip Zimbardo. He's one of the most famous living psychologists. At the time he was teaching at NYU, a few years later, he left and went to Stanford where he spent the rest of his career. And he was just a spellbinding magician in the class. So I took this class and when it was over, all I wanted to do was study psychology. I realized in retrospect that he was of course performing and painting a picture and the picture that he was painting wasn't completely accurate. You know, he was trying to entertain and entice, and he was very good at it. And he certainly enticed me. So I wish I could say that I understood what the intellectual lay of the land was, and I made a rational decision to pursue psychology, but that would be a lie. It's so interesting. Yeah, because you were talking about the performative nature of education, especially now, and just having that charismatic person that can excite you to do the hard work, right? That's exactly right. As long as, and you know, he really made a point of this. So he was an entertainer in the introductory course. But if you then took the next course that he taught, he was a taskmaster. So he wanted to make sure that the false impression he created in the introductory class immediately got correct. This is hard work. You got to read these things carefully. You got to know all kinds of details about the articles that you're reading. And there are lots and lots of these articles and you need to remember what's in them and so on. So basically, fun's over, guys. So I think he was mindful that he was seducing and he didn't want the seduction to lead to people pursuing a path that they would end up sorry they pursued. So he got very reality driven as soon as you got to the next level of classes with him, which I also very much appreciated. 
Yes, and what's been ever present in our minds? And so what we've been thinking about a lot is what is the nature of consciousness? Where does consciousness reside? And some are positive that the conscious, they're developing consciousness. It's a new evolution of life where there's lots of out there theories. But for you, where does it reside? And what is the nature of consciousness? Oh, man, I wish I could answer that question. You know, philosophers have agonized over this is the big question. The big question that no one knows how to quite get their arms around. And there are people who think that it's what's called epiphenomenal. We certainly have the sensation of consciousness, but it really isn't playing a causal role. You know, we're basically just part of nature and just like the balls on a billiard table move around in accordance with laws of physics, so it is with us. It's just that it feels like we are thinking, contemplating, deciding, and acting. It feels as though we are in charge of what happens. And when we do things non-consciously, we regret not being more conscious of the situation we're in before we act. If that view ends up being true, which I find hard to believe, it so violates our experience with the world that I can't imagine any it ever actually overcoming our more intuitive sense that there is a person in here who is sort of observing us and talking to us and helping us to understand what's going on in the world and what's going on with other people. But I will leave the problem of consciousness to people who are smarter than I am. Well, that, that's a good move. Like we can only ever guess. And we all, of course, it's the thing we know the best, but that we still do not know. <laughs> We're emotional beings and our decision-making process is, of course, you know, flooded by emotions at times. And, you know, whether, as you say, whether we're agential or whether we really operate through logic, the majority of our decisions. No, no, we are. And I think one of the mistakes we have made is to think of emotion as the enemy, that emotion does us no good and will often lead us astray. Don't be too emotional, or don't be emotional. Think it out rationally. And I think that really artificially separates thinking and feeling. And often emotion educates. I mean, sometimes it distorts, but often it educates. And we need it to mention that it motivates. You could understand the world and never leave your couch unless there was something impelling you to act in the world, and often what impels you to act in the world is emotion. It's what gives you energy. So while acknowledging that emotions get us into trouble sometimes, I can't even imagine what it would be like to live a life with emotions completely under control. Yeah, that would make us very dangerous. I think it would basically turn us all into sociopaths. And also you speak about the instinctive um, elements of that. And sometimes it's a, a complex resonance of things, you know, a cultural resonance of things that we've picked up over time and that we don't even know. Yeah, often. I wouldn't use the word instinctive. There's a very distinguished anthropologist from years past named Clifford Geertz. And what he said is that human beings uniquely are, quote, unfinished animals. And what he meant by that is that we come into the world with some structures, some constraints, some essential knowledge, but very incomplete. And society completes us. And that is not true of most of the other species in the world. They come into the world a lot closer to being complete than we do. And so it certainly becomes sort of automatic, the effect of culture on us, but probably not instinctive. You know, if you grow up in East Asia, you're going to be impacted by the culture of 
that society in ways, some of which you will appreciate and some of which you won't, but you will not have come out of the womb that way. The environment within which you grow is going to turn you into one kind of person rather than another kind of person. So that is how unfinished animals get finished. And much of that influence is, is, as I said earlier in our conversation, is influence we are unaware of as it is exerting itself. Yes, I should have said cultural memory, perhaps. Um, yes, that's better. And but there are some areas uh, where I feel like we have too much emotion in terms of the uh, way our media presents uh, political conflicts. I would like to have that taken down a bit so that we can act decisively on important issues. Oh, I, look, I agree. But if I were going to try to put my finger on what is going so seriously wrong, at least in the U.S. and in the political world, it would be less that we are acting too much from emotion and more that we have lost any interest in and respect for truth. And so we distort reality in the service of powerfully held emotional aspirations. And I think in earlier times, there were some constraints on how much we would distort reality. When I was growing up, everybody turned on the news at seven o'clock to watch Walter Cronkite deliver the evening news. And so everybody got at least one common picture of the world as it was at seven o'clock on that day. And then they could fight about how the world should be different. But everybody watched the same show. And that was the truth. And of course, it wasn't always the truth. There were distortions, there were various interests, there were sloppiness. But everyone thought what we heard from this guy was the truth. And now what are we going to do about it? Well, those days are completely gone. So you can't get people to agree about anything. And so I think the hold that emotion has is a sign of the weakness of truth in our lives. Emotion would be constrained by the facts of the matter if we could agree on what the facts of the matter were. But people don't feel the need to agree to get to the bottom of things. Daniel Moynihan famously said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not everyone is entitled to their own facts. And I don't think in modern society, people believe that to be true. It just didn't happen all at once. And it didn't just happen with Trump. Uh, 30 years ago, the word spin started to get introduced in political discourse where you weren't actually lying, but you were using language as a, a way to reinterpret the facts in a way that was most congenial to your side of the debate. And of course, that had always been true, but it used to be done sort of in secret. And then people suddenly stopped feeling at all embarrassed to admit up front that spin is what, that's what the game's about, is taking things that are sometimes inconvenient truths and spinning them in a way that makes them less inconvenient, more hospitable to your point of view. And once it goes from backstage to onstage, I think very quickly our desire to get to the bottom of things gets, starts to get eroded. And we're now at a point where the erosion is almost complete. Yeah, there is that lack of uh, respect. There is a lot of litigating in the media that just fuels this atmosphere. Absolutely. It's a wrestling match in pursuit of victory rather than in pursuit of truth. And here too, you can see the economic sort of market pressures pushing in this direction. If you want people watching your show, you got to find the most sensational possible way to say whatever it is you're going to say. 
And here too, interestingly, people who turned against Trump after he won the presidential election couldn't get enough of him before that. Because when Trump was on their show, ratings went. And they'd be happy to give him a platform three days a week. Because when he was on, ratings went up. And when ratings went up, ad rates went up. And when ad rates went up, your salary went up. And then when he actually became president, they started to turn against him and never fully acknowledged that they had created this person in the service of, you know, corporate bottom lines. Yeah. Social media president or meme presidents. It's yes, it's certainly strange. And speaking of this lack of, let's say you talk about diplomacy or elegance and language, I think that this is being accelerated as well. We talk about our technology in that we read now for information, whether you agree on what, whether that information is factual. And our technology pushes us towards ever more efficient queries instead of more reflective, nuanced thinking. Right. And there's no such thing as subtlety. And if you start, if somebody asks you a question and you begin your answer by saying it's complicated, people stop listening. They don't want complicated. They want simple. And I think one consequence of this is, as with wisdom, it takes practice to be able to manage complexity. And if you are not being forced to get this practice in the classroom, where's it going to come from? And so in an effort not to have kids who are frustrated and confused and challenged, we make things too simple for them in the classroom, and they get very little practice handling complexity. And they aren't interested in long form anything. They want short form media, which means that all the complexity simply gets erased. And the result is that they're not equipped to handle complexity when it smacks them in the face, you know, and thinking that this is just something that emerges as you get older is ridiculous. It emerges only because you get practice dealing with it. But young people don't get as much practice as they used to. So in the classroom, you know, to cultivate this critical thinking and moving beyond passive intelligence, you know, what were some things that you imparted to your students? Well, I've always tried to leave them with more questions than they had when we started. I, I felt like it was my obligation to make sure that every question I answered was replaced by a more sophisticated question that I didn't answer. And that wasn't just to train them to think about complexity. It was also to give them an honest assessment of what we understood and what we didn't. And so my style tends to be more authoritative than I would like, but I tried to make sure that when I didn't know the answer to something, I said, I don't know the answer to that and neither does anybody else. And it's a great question. See what you can find out about. And that was sort of my mission. And I also tried to make sure that students listened to one another. And that's often also vanished. When another student is talking, you're formulating what you're going to say so that you can impress the teacher instead of listening to what that other person is saying, which means that you only learn from the teacher and you don't learn from fellow students who often have a lot to offer. And that's too bad. Teaching at a small or large college where classes were small and a lot of them involved a lot of discussion, ameliorated that problem to some degree. But still, there was this desire on the part of students to impress teachers and to perform. And so they didn't pay as much attention to their fellow students as they should have. Yeah, I think that's so important, this role of listening. No, and this too is, is a skill. Learning how to listen. It takes humility. It takes openness. 
it takes a certain kind of courage because if you really listen to someone else, there's a chance that your view of the world will be changed. And this is not something that people are comfortable. So we say it's important to be a good listener, but I think we underappreciate just how hard it is to listen to what other people are saying. I think it's important for young people to understand that life is hard and that they need to be, on the one hand, ambitious, and on the other hand, humble, because they are likely to make mistakes. And every mistake is an opportunity to become wiser and become smarter. And the task is to try to make it so that the consequences of mistakes are not catastrophic, so that you actually get to live another day and do it better the next day than you did it this day. And I want young people to appreciate how much they have to learn from one another and from older people. Well, thank you very Schwartz for igniting imaginations and curiosity, sharing your insights into psychology of happiness, work and decision making and helping us understand how to make better decisions so that we can live lives of greater purpose and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much, Mia. It was really a pleasure. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this episode was Sophie Garnier. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.